With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I want to talk about our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for all of your support. Your support through these years have kept us coming back, and we could not afford to do this without you. Thanks to each and every one of you. Also, if you would like to become a Patreon member, head on over to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Ohio Mysteries, and consider becoming a supporter for as little as a dollar. Another great way to help us is to share our podcast with your friends and family. Leave a fantastic review, and that's all we ask. So let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. If you ever have the opportunity to be in Chicago's Hyde Park, especially on any March the 13th, then stroll over to the Clarence Darrow Memorial Bridge. It's just behind the Museum of Science and Industry. You probably won't be alone. For decades, people have gathered at the bridge on the anniversary of Darrow's death in the hopes of seeing his ghost. That's because before he died, the country's arguably most famous criminal defense attorney told people that if it were possible, he would return on the small bridge on the date of his death. It's not that he believed in an afterlife. He was well known to be agnostic. He just didn't want mediums charging hardworking people to talk to his spirit. The bridge was visible from his home on East 60th Street, and he used to spend time standing on it, contemplating the mysteries of life and the complexities of his cases. He even had his ashes scattered from the bridge. I don't know if Darrow has ever actually made an appearance there. He died in 1938, so there have been plenty of anniversaries to keep his promise. But even without his ghost, Darrow's spirit is alive and well. The impacts of his trials and his inspirational speeches are woven into the very fabric of American life. Darrow, who lived in fear of being poor, left the lucrative world of corporate law during Chicago's Gilded Age 
in order to become a champion of the underdog. He's the guy who defended the Tennessee teacher who broke a state law by teaching evolution instead of creationism. That so-called Scopes Monkey trial inspired the Spencer Tracy movie, Inherit the Wind. He's the guy who convinced a judge to give the college thrill killers, Leopold and Loeb, life sentences instead of the death penalty. A shocking case that inspired the Alfred Hitchcock film, Rope. Darrow is the guy who got a white jury to free 11 black defendants who had killed a white man in a mob. Those sweet trials became the subject of books, plays, and film, and Darrow's landmark closing statement was included in a book called Speeches That Changed the World. So tonight, settle in while we bring you the life of Clarence Darrow, his untraditional upbringing in Northeast Ohio, and some of the cases that made him a courtroom superstar. Clarence Seward Darrow was born on April the 18th, 1857, in Kinsman Township. That's in Trumbull County. He entered the world in a little crossroads called Farmdale and was raised in a neighboring hamlet called Kinsman. His childhood home is still there, by the way, on Main Street. It has a historical marker in front of it. He was the fifth of eight children born to Amaris and Emily Darrow, both of whom descended from the early New England settlers and veterans of the American Revolution. Now, Kinsman was a Norman Rockwell kind of community, a few hundred souls, an old village square, churches with white steeples. It was a perfect hometown for a young boy. The Pymatuning River gave youngsters a place for fishing and swimming, and there were plenty of woods to roam. Clarence and his siblings ran barefoot most months, played fox and geese, skated in the ponds, and attended a one-room schoolhouse. But the Darrows didn't fit into the homogenous, conservative lifestyle of kinsmen, and the children paid dearly for that. Neighbors called Clarence's dad the village infidel. He was a religious freethinker and an ardent abolitionist. He helped runaway slaves and housed active abolitionists who came through town on their way to fight slaveholders in those days before the Civil War. Clarence's mom was a suffragette and vocal supporter of women's rights. Together, they rubbed enough people the wrong way that the more pious of their neighbors avoided the furniture store where Amorous made and sold cabinets and tables. And the Darrow children struggled to make friends with families who disapproved of their liberal beliefs. Heck, even their house screamed nonconformity. It was shaped like an octagon, a relic of an 18th century architectural fad. In his autobiography, Farmington, Darrow wrote that he and his siblings, quote, faced the social boycott that the godly enforced against the children of darkness. He thought of his hometown as narrow and smug, and he much more wanted to be like his uncles, 
who fiddled and drank whiskey. Clarence was inspired by his dad. To be totally honest, he found both of his parents to be cold and distant. They weren't the hugging kind. But he admired the courage his dad displayed in besting neighbors during political and religious debates. Clarence said his dad taught him to question things rather than accept and to always doubt the majority. Clarence was 15 when his mom died. She was buried in a coffin built by her husband, the cabinet maker. Young Clarence said the whole period was agony for him, and he was left with endless regret that he had never told his mom he loved her or showed her the physical affection that he had always craved. He reached for that physical connection the rest of his life. He didn't know if there was life after death, but on his deathbed, he actually asked his wife to kill herself so she could cross over with him because he didn't want to go alone. couple of years after his mother's death, Clarence decided on a career in law. His family scraped together enough money to send him to Allegheny College in Pennsylvania. But then the panic of 1873 hit, and he didn't want to be a financial burden. So he dropped out and started teaching at a little country school a few miles from home. He hadn't given up on law, though. He continued to study law on his own, reading law books from the personal library of the village blacksmith. When the economy settled down three years later, his family sent him to the University of Michigan Law School. The Darrows were big believers in education, and as his older siblings had finished college themselves, they would devote a share of their earnings to help the younger ones pay tuition. But again, Clarence only lasted a year. He thought classrooms were a waste of time. He'd much rather learn by doing. So he got a job apprenticing in a law office in Youngstown. And in 1878, he took and passed the Ohio Bar Exam. Now, Clarence married Jessie Ohl. That was a girl from a prosperous local family who he had courted for years. And they had their first and only child, Paul, in 1883. Clarence opened his first law office in Andover, a small rural town about 10 miles from where he grew up. And there he found himself dealing with the everyday complaints and problems of a small farming community. He later would say lawsuits in a place like that were like medieval tournaments, Neighborhoods, churches, lodges would all take sides. Audiences would assemble from far and near to hear the details. Darrow said he got to know a lot of the sins his neighbors tried to hide. But it was still small-town Ohio. Clarence picked up and moved his practice to the bigger city of Ashtabula and became active in the Democratic Party. Darrow was an amazing orator. So much so, he was always invited to patriotic events to give inspiring speeches. I found one of his public speeches from 1886 where he took up the cause of suffragettes. 
He said American men defamed the principles for which the country's founding fathers fought by denying women the vote. In 1887, Darrow made one more move, a big one. The Ashtabula Standard carried the news of his impending departure, saying Darrow, quote, will shake the dust of Ashtabula from his feet and take up his abode in the wickedest city in the United States. The next month, he, his wife, and son relocated to Chicago. Talk about culture shock. Ashtabula had 5,000 people. Chicago had over a million. Darrow knew no one. The couple scrimped and spent as little as possible while Clarence scrambled for small jobs while trying to find the right elbows to rub. He joined the Henry George Club, made some friends, and started to become a regular speaker at the club on behalf of the Democratic Party. That led to work representing the city of Chicago and eventually a full-time job in the city's law department. Then, in the 1890s, Clarence faced a struggle for his very soul. His entire adult life, he feared living in the kind of poverty he faced in his childhood. So when he was offered a position representing the Northwestern Railway Company, he resigned his job with the city and took it. Given his upbringing, becoming a corporate lawyer was a little like going to the dark side. But it was a short-lived diversion. In 1894, a man named Eugene Debs, the leader of the American Railway Union, was being prosecuted by the federal government for leading the Pullman Strike of 1894. The country was in the midst of a depression, and the railroad had cut the pay of its workers by 25% while refusing to lower the rent it charged those same workers to live in their company towns. Families were facing homelessness and starvation. Darrow severed his ties with the railroad and gave up all that money to go and represent Debs. He was clearly back on the path he was meant for, fighting for the working man. After that, Darrow became one of the country's leading labor attorneys and defending members accused of sometimes very violent strike activity. He was becoming quite well-known in many circles. Now, Clarence wasn't successful in everything. He tried running for U.S. Congress in 1895, but lost, and his first marriage to Jesse ended in divorce. He remarried to a Chicago journalist named Ruby Hammerstrom. And in 1911, he even ended up on the wrong side of the law. He was charged with trying to bribe a juror in a Los Angeles union case. He was acquitted on one charge, had a hung jury on the second charge, and escaped a retrial by agreeing to never practice law in California again. To this day, we don't really know if he was guilty. Early biographers defended him and said they didn't believe he was involved. 
but more recent biographers say, uh, yeah, he almost certainly was. Either way, the accusation alone effectively ended Darrow's career as a labor lawyer. And that's how he ended up becoming what he's most known for, as a criminal defense attorney. That suited him just fine. Darrow had always been convinced the criminal justice system did not adequately represent people charged with a crime, especially if they were poor, black, or social outcasts. Darrow was also a lifelong opponent of the death penalty. And wow, was he good at what he did. In more than 100 cases where he represented a murder defendant, he only lost one to an executioner. Darrow had a special way with jurors and judges. His closing arguments were often eloquent speeches, sometimes lasting hours, and delivered in his rumpled suit. He easily moved people to tears. So that brings us to one of the first cases that come to mind when you mention Clarence Darrow, the trial of Leopold and Loeb. Now, these defendants were not the typical underdog clients he usually took on. This pair came from wealth and privilege. In the summer of 1924, Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Loeb were the teenage sons of two whale-hilled Chicago families from the stylish Southside Kenwood neighborhood. Both of these kids were prodigies. At the age of 18, Leopold had finished his undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago and was planning to begin Harvard Law School. Loeb, at 17, was the youngest graduate ever from the University of Michigan, and he had just begun law school at the University of Chicago. The two young men, now 19 and 18 years old respectively, kidnapped and killed Bobby Franks, a 14-year-old boy from their neighborhood. They believed that because of their superior intellects, average laws shouldn't pertain to them and they wanted to show they could get away with murder. (laughs) They didn't. As a matter of fact, young Bobby was found in an isolated nature preserve near the Indiana border just half a day after his body was hidden there. And Leopold had dropped his distinctive eyeglasses at the scene. The pair were rounded up a week later, made full confessions, and even led Chicago police on a hunt around town to collect the evidence that would be used against them. When asked why they committed the crime, Leopold said it was, and here's a quote, a sort of pure love of excitement, the imaginary love of thrills and doing something different, the satisfaction and the ego of putting something over. Well, Chicago newspapers labeled the case the trial of the century. And around the country, people were debating what could drive two young, promising men who had the world at their fingertips to commit such a senseless and depraved act. Immediately, 
The state's attorney told the press, this is a hanging case, for sure. But Darrow's specialty was saving obvious defendants from the noose. Darrow's strategy was for the boys to plead guilty. That would avoid them needing a jury at all. All that was left was a sentencing phase, which would be done before Judge John Caverly. Now, if Darrow could just get the judge to see that Leopold and Loeb were mentally diseased, he brought on experts to demonstrate how psychological, physical, and environmental influences controlled human behavior, and how this particular pair of young men lacked the emotional system that most people have that would allow them to feel revulsion for what they did. And Darrow continually reiterated their young ages, hoping to soften the public to make it easier for Judge Caverly to forego the ultimate punishment. And it worked. Caverly sentenced Leopold and Lope to life in prison plus 99 years. To answer public criticism that Leopold and Loeb's wealth had saved them, Darrow insisted he would not take a big paycheck. He said he was making a point, not money. In the end, he netted just $30,000. Now, one year after the Leopold and Loeb case, Darrow took on what was arguably the most important case of his life, the Scopes Monkey Trial. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Here's the setting. It's 1925. In Dayton, Tennessee, a teacher named John Scopes has been arrested for teaching evolution, the theory that humans evolved from a lower order of animals. At this time, in Tennessee, it was law that public schools could only teach the biblical version of how life began. This trial was going to pit Clarence Darrow against another very famous legal mind, William Jennings Bryan. One of the most memorable parts of the trial was when Darrow put Bryan on the stand. Bryan was the counsel for the prosecutor, but he kept acting like he knew the Bible. So Darrow got the judge to agree Bryan could serve as an expert witness on the topic. Darrow led Brian into discussions of things like how Eve could have been created from a rib and where Cain got his wife from if his parents were the first two people on the planet. Darrow used these examples to suggest that the stories of the Bible could not be scientific and therefore should not be used in teaching science. The banter was entertaining, but only lasted a couple of hours. The judge called an end to it and told the jury to disregard the entire thing. 
But Darrow had made his point. He often had the assembled crowd cheering for him. And this was the Bible Belt. This is one of those cases that took a while to have an impact because, you see, Scopes was found guilty of breaking the Tennessee law and fined $100. But a year later, the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed the decision. They said it was over a technicality, but they outright dismissed it rather than sending it back to be retried, saying, Nothing is to be gained by prolonging the life of this bizarre case. In the end, the event led to a change in the public's opinion on the topic, opening the door for broader teaching of evolution. A little mystery in here, by the way. Five days after the Scopes trial ended, William Jennings Bryan died in his sleep. Historians have long debated whether his death was in any way caused by the intensity of the trial. Now, another case that same year also stands out in Darrow's career, the Sweet Trials. It was the summer of 1925 in Detroit, and a black doctor named Ocean Sweet decided to move his family into an all-white neighborhood on Garland Avenue. He had purchased the home a couple of months earlier, but he had postponed moving in because the racial tension was just intense. In the end, he told his brother Henry, I have to live like a man or die like a coward. So he had his children stay with family, and he and his wife moved in on September the 8th. Now, Ocean brought in his brothers and some friends to join them in those first couple of nights, just in case there was trouble. And trouble came the next night on September the 9th. As Gladys Sweet made dinner in her new kitchen, and Dr. Sweet and his friends played cards at the table, hundreds of people assembled outside. Just after 8 p.m., the stones started flying, and windows were shattered. Inside the sweet home, Henry Sweet fired his gun. A bullet struck a man outside. Detroit police convened on the house, arrested all 11 black adults who were inside, and the prosecutor promised to charge all 11 of them with first-degree murder. The NAACP asked Darrow to help defend them. They didn't have to ask twice. The Sweets went on trial before an all-white jury. Now, I've mentioned some movies that have been inspired by Clarence Darrow in his cases. There's another movie that comes to mind with this one, the John Grisham story, A Time to Kill. In that tale, an attorney defends a black man who killed two white men for raping his little girl. During his closing argument, the attorney gets the white jury to imagine the atrocities committed against the little girl, then asks them to imagine she's white. The argument is very effective. I can't help but wonder if the sweet case inspired Grisham, because that's exactly what happened here. Clarence Darrow asked the jury to imagine a mob of black men attacking a white home. 
a white defender killing one of the members of the black mob, and then police arresting everyone inside the white home and charging them with murder. He said to the jury, if I thought any of you had an opinion about the guilt of my clients, I wouldn't worry because that might be changed. What I'm worried about is prejudice. That's harder to change. It comes with your mother's milk and sticks like the color of the skin. I know that if these defendants had been a white group defending themselves from a colored mob, they never would have been arrested or tried. My clients are charged with murder, but they are really charged with being black. Daryl's argument made an impact on five jurors who wanted to acquit the defendants. When the hung jury couldn't agree, the judge declared a mistrial. So it was agreed after that that the 11 defendants would be tried individually, and they started with Henry Sweet, who had confessed to firing shots from the house that night. In that solo trial, Henry was found not guilty on grounds of self-defense. The prosecutor dropped the charges against the others because by then there was no point. Darrow's closing statement in that last trial lasted over seven hours, and it's seen as a landmark in the civil rights movement. As a matter of fact, as Judge Frank Murphy left the bench, he took a friend's hand and said, this is the greatest experience of my life. That was Clarence Darrow at his best. I will never hear anything like it again. He is the most Christ-like man I have ever known. Now, Clarence Darrow died on March the 13th, 1938, at his home in Chicago, Illinois. He was 81. In addition to the movies I've already mentioned, his life has been turned into numerous books, plays, movies, TV episodes. One of the most recent biographies in 2012 was titled Attorney for the Damned. I mentioned the historical marker at his home in Kinsman, that octagon-shaped house on Main Street. Well, there's also a statue of him outside the courthouse in Dayton, Tennessee, where the Scopes trial took place. And, of course, the bridge named for him in Hyde Park. Hopefully, you've now learned just enough about him that if you ever spot his spirit at the bridge, you'll be able to carry on a conversation. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, share our podcast everywhere. We are currently trying to reach our goal of being the number one podcast on killerpodcasts.com, which we currently hold the second most listened podcast there. I know you can help us get there. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. 
Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.